invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. I'm preaching through the book of Galatians this summer, and we're into chapter 3. Just to catch you up to date, the book of Galatians is written by the Apostle Paul. There is apparently smoke or steam coming out of his ears as he writes. You even get a better picture of that at the end of, the, end of this letter. But the reason he's upset is because he's writing to a group of believers who are his children in the faith. Parents, imagine if your child went off somewhere to camp or to college or something, and everything you'd ever taught them, somebody's coming along and saying, that's not right, and this is right. That's kind of what the book of Galatians is about. What's happening now in this region of Galatia with these many cities and several churches that have been planted there is a group of people called the Judaizers have come in. The Judaizers were one who were raised in a Jewish tradition. Some of them had come to faith in Christ, but they were trying to add something to the cross. They were basically saying, yeah, it's one thing to trust Christ as your Savior, but you also need to go back and fulfill all of the Old Testament law. In the beginning of chapter 3, Paul shows what faith can do. And he makes a distinction between the law and faith. The passage we're looking at this morning is verses 10 through 18, and it will show what the law cannot do. Three words I want you to get this morning. Three words. First one is curse. I don't want you to curse. I just want you to get the word curse. The second word is the word promise. Big difference between curse and promise. And part of the promise is that third word, and it's the word inheritance. Inheritance. I don't know if you've ever had a relative come to you and kind of show you their estate and say, one day, all this will be yours. That's an inheritance. And the inheritance that comes from God is a good thing, not like the inheritance I read about this week. Jack died. His lawyer is standing before the family and reads out Jack's last will and testament. To my dear wife, Esther, I leave the house, 50 acres of land, and $1 million dollars. To my son, Barry, I leave my big Lexus and the Jaguar. To my daughter, Susie, I leave my yacht and $250,000. And to my brother-in-law, Jeff, who always insisted that health is better than wealth, I leave my son, Lamp. I don't know what you're expecting in inheritance. It may be a good idea if you're hoping for something inheritance that you wish your father a happy Father's Day today. But we're going to look at an inheritance today that's, that's a lot better than anything on earth. Let me read the first few verses of this passage. Beginning in verse 10 of chapter 3. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, to one is, now no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However... The law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And part of the beauty of Paul's argument is that Paul argues quite often from the Old Testament. Why? Because the people he's arguing against are using the Old Testament, taking things out of context, and trying to teach that in a New Testament application where grace has already been applied. Everything in the Old Testament points towards Christ 
and the fulfillment of the law in Christ. They weren't looking at it that way, and they certainly weren't teaching it that way. So he says, as many are as of the law. And so he's basically saying, anybody listening to me, anybody reading this letter who wants to say, no, wait a minute, we're not of grace, we're of the law. We're keepers of the law. They were proud of that. Well, if that's true, then you're under a curse. We're all born under the law. We're all born under this curse. When you tell your child to stop doing something and they say, no, who taught them that? You didn't teach them that. Who do they get that from? Their mother. No, they don't get it from their mother. <laughs> who do they get that from? They get it from Adam. <laughs> they get it from the fact that we're all born under a curse. We're born resistant to the law. We're born under not being able to keep the law. And the Old Testament was full of laws. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments. It was hundreds of other laws that were, many of them, they were given by God. If they're written in the Old Testament, they were actually laws from God. So they were good. They had a purpose. The purpose was never to bring salvation. The purpose was to point to the need of a Savior. They were to point to Christ who would come and fulfill them perfectly. So as many as are under the law are under a curse, literally under the influence of a spoken condemnation. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written. So what Paul's saying is there's this spoken curse. In fact, what we looked at last week was the word justified, and that's a judicial pronouncement. The gavel falls, and the judge says, you are justified. We're going to look at that towards the end of the message today, but that justification doesn't come through the law. The only possible way, listen, the only possible way it can come under the law is if you keep all of the law perfectly all of your life. Anybody want to get to heaven based on that plan? That's not a good plan. How many sins does it take to make you a sinner? One. Anybody here even want to get, well, I just won. No. We've all sinned. So in order to get to God based on the law, you've got to keep the law perfectly all the time. Has anybody ever done that? Jesus. That's why Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for us. He did perfectly keep the law, never sinned, not one time. In fact, the Bible says he was tempted in all the ways that we've been tempted, yet without sin. So none of us have been able to keep the law perfectly, and none of us want to live forever under this curse of the law. The common opinion of Jewish scholars of that day was that common people had no knowledge of the law, so they were under this curse, but they weren't. Paul takes the tables and turns it on and says, no, they're not only under the curse. We're all under the curse. You're all under the curse. Apart from Christ. From the book of the law, it's written that you have to perform them. These are things you have to do, and you have to do every single one of them. Verse 11, no one is justified by the law. It has become evident. No one is justified. What does the word justified mean? It means pronounced innocent. I remember growing up, somebody defined justification this way. They said, justified means just as if I'd never sinned. You ever heard that? It's actually better than that. It's better than just as if I'd never sinned. It really means this, just as if I'd always done everything right. That's what it means to be justified. So before God, you, you appear before God apart from Christ. If you don't know Christ, you're under the curse of the law. The gavel's already fallen. The judgment's already been pronounced. You're guilty. 
But in Christ, you face God. You're justified. Why? Because of anything you've done? No. Because of Christ. It is also a pronouncement. You are pronounced justified just as if you'd always done everything right. Why? Because we now have the righteousness of Christ. So under the curse, keeping the law puts you under the curse. It's evident that the righteous shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Now, does that make you feel helpless? If all we did was just stop right there, and all we've heard Paul say is, if you're going to try to keep the law, let me just tell you, it can't happen. You'll never be pronounced righteous by keeping the law because you can't possibly do it. Does that make you feel helpless? It should. It should bring you to the point where you say, woe is me. I'm ruined. I've got no hope. And that's good because that's the point of the law. We'll look at this next week. The law really does become a schoolmaster. It points out your need for a Savior. So if it makes you feel guilty or if it makes you feel helpless, you're right where you need to be because help's on the way. It's a good thing. you got two choices at this point. How are we going to earn? How are we going to get salvation? One choice is earn it. How do you earn it? Perfectly keep the law all of the time. Never mess up. Or receive it by faith, by grace, through faith. Second point, that's the curse proclaimed. The second point is the curse removed. Christ redeemed us. The word redeem literally means to buy back. What does that mean? You were made by God. You're his workmanship. You were made by God. He, he really owns you, has a right to you. The problem is because of sin, we're separated from God. So in the world's economy, we should have had to do something to get back to God because he didn't leave us. We left him. We sinned. But redeemed means he did what was necessary to buy us back. Anybody have a redemption center when you were growing up? I don't even think these exist anymore, but my mom used to collect S&H green stamps. There were other kind of stamps. They had these buildings with this big word, redemption center. I thought, that's what we ought to put over the church. <laughs> but what did it mean? It meant that you collected these stamps, and this was back before they understood what stickum was, and so you had to lick these things and like get glue all over your tongue. It really wasn't good for you. I think we were saving up for a basketball or something. You only needed like a million stamps. <laughs> you know, you had these books you'd flip through, you know, hey, we're going to buy a new car. How many do we need for this, Mom? Well, yeah. How many we got? We got a couple hundred. All right, well, let's go for the basketball. We can have that in about three years. You take all these books down, and what would you do? You'd tr- trade this for that. What did Christ do? Christ traded himself, his life on the cross for us. He bought us back. We have been redeemed. So the curse has been removed. The curse is lifted in Christ. He has become a curse for us. I want you to let that sit on your ear for a minute. You've you got to think about that for a minute. That's weighty. You and I were cursed because of sin. Christ became a curse for us. For us. Not a curse for us. You could say that too. But he became the very curse that we were. He took our curse, not just ours, but the sin of the world on himself. And Paul quotes an Old Testament scripture. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Literally, cursed is anybody who hangs on wood. And whether it was the 
Hebrew custom of stoning someone that they considered to be a sinner. And then they would take them and stick them on a stick so that everybody could see. They were real big. They didn't have PowerPoint. We don't either. But they had visual help. And so by the side of the road, they would put these sticks with people that they had stoned to death on them. If it means that or if it meant what happened to Christ, which was the Roman form of capital punishment, and that was crucifixion on a cross, either way, you're stuck on a piece of wood. And the Old Testament scripture said, cursed is everyone who hangs on the piece of the wood. You're not cursed because you hung on the wood. You hung on the wood because you were cursed. It was a visual evidence of this person was pronounced guilty, condemned, and so they hung in Christ's condition on the cross. And Christ was on the cross for hours with people passing by. And normally they would have a sentence above the head. They would have a word that said, or a, a phrase that said, here's what this person is being killed for. He's being put to death because he killed someone. He was put to death because he was a criminal. He stole whatever. You remember what it had over Christ? Pilate thought this would be funny. He put up king of the Jews. And yet it was supposed to be a visual demonstration. You better find out what these people did and don't ever do it. So Christ took our curse on himself. He didn't deserve that. Christ wasn't cursed. Why? Because he never broke the law. He kept it perfectly. And yet he became cursed. He became a curse for us. The symbol of the curse has become a symbol of the blessing. We have a cross on the steeple of this chapel. We have a cross behind this. Normally on Sundays you can see it. We've got something in front of it today. Some of you wear a cross around your neck. The next time you see a cross, I want you to think about this. That's a symbol of a curse that became a symbol of blessing. In order that. Why did Jesus do that? Verse 14, in order that Christ Jesus would become the blessing that was promised to Abraham. And he, again, quotes Old Testament. There was a promise given to Abraham, and it was a promise to his seed, to what was going to come and follow after him. That's part of the promise we'll look at in just a minute. But we have been promised that we would receive the Spirit through faith. So Christ became a curse so that our curse could be lifted and we received not what we deserve. We received the Spirit of God in residence in our life. That's justifying faith. It involves three things. What is justifying? What, what do you have to do? What's required of you to receive justifying faith? First of all, it's self-renunciation. That's a big word. What does it mean? Put aside all of your effort, your self-effort. You don't come to God and say, look what I did. Is this good enough? So you put aside your own merit. Second, you rely fully on and submit fully to God. I surrender all. So you lay aside any human effort. You come empty-handed to God and say, I got nothing. And the third thing is you receive. So you put aside self, rely on and submit to God, and you receive the free gift, the 
pardon of God in Christ. And then the best part, the promise fulfilled. Let me read verses 15 through 18. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. The promise that God offered to Abraham hundreds of years before Christ, and now thousands of years before us, has been fulfilled. Brethren, I speak, and he basically says, I'm going to speak in human terms for a minute. They all knew about covenants. They all knew about a will. Somebody, a father, a mother, a couple could say, here's what we want done with what we've got after we're gone. And the point he's making is, what's that, once that's been ratified, once that's been agreed to, once that's been witnessed, same thing happens in lawyers, attorneys' offices today. You draw up a will. It's filed with the courthouse. It's on file. Once that will has been ratified and that person passes away, you can't come and change the will. You can't say, well, I don't, I don't like this. I want to change that. Who can change it? The only person that can change it is the one who wrote the will. The, the person, if they're still alive, can say, I want to amend my will. But other than that, once that person has died, the will is valid, and you can't nullify it. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. So that's what Paul's saying. The point Paul's making is, I'm going to give you an illustration of inheritance because what God did with Abraham is the same with us. We all understand covenants between people. Now, a will is typically one person leaving something to somebody else, and this person's the one doing all the action. A covenant with God is typically two people. In fact, they would do some special things. In fact, with God and Abraham, he he did this. They would actually take animals and slaughter them and split them in half. And the two people making the covenant would walk between the two halves of this animal, and it would be a covenant sealed in blood. Go back and read Genesis. The story with Abraham, God didn't have Abraham walk through the pieces of the animal. He had the animals prepared, but he walked through them to ratify the covenant. What was the covenant with Abraham? Talked a little bit about it last week. You can go back to Genesis and see what God did was he said, Abraham, come here. Come out here and count the stars. Well, y'all try that tonight. Get where it's real dark. You can't count the stars. Why? Because there's a bunch of them. You know, you start here, and you're going to run out of fingers and toes and ribs and whatever else you can count on. My calculator doesn't go that high. But what was the point God was making? Abraham, you're going to have as many offspring as there are stars in the heavens. There's one problem. Abraham didn't have any children. In fact, he named somebody. He said, well, I guess you're talking about so-and-so. God said, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody from your own body. And it was years later that Abraham and Sarah had a child. His name's Isaac. The two of them had a child. And then what does God do? All right, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go sacrifice Isaac. Do you remember the story? So Abraham prepares the sacrifice. They walk a few days over into the wilderness. Abraham prepares the sacrifice. Abraham 
raises the knife. In fact, I love Isaac asked the question, where's the animal for the sacrifice? You remember what Abraham said? The Lord will provide. And I don't know what was going through Abraham's mind at that time. He either thought, because he believed God so much that God was going to fulfill his promise, he either believed that God was going to spare Isaac's life or raise him from the dead or provide another offspring. But as the knife is raised, God stops him and provides a lamb for him to sacrifice. It's important because what Paul's saying is Abraham was pronounced righteous before the law, 430 years before the law. And one of the things the Judaizers were saying to the Galatians is, hey, you people in Galatia, okay, men, you've come to faith in Christ. You also need to be circumcised, by the way. It's important to know that Abraham was pronounced righteous by God 14 years before he was circumcised and commanded by God to be circumcised. So what's Paul trying to say? By their own argument, he's poking holes on it, in it, turning the tables on it. Because he's saying, your argument doesn't hold water. The law is not what brought blessing to Abraham. It's not what declared him righteous or justified in the eyes of God. What was it? His faith. Abraham believed God. And because of that, he was counted as being righteous. So he says, okay, here's the illustration now. The promises to Abraham. They were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. It says it doesn't say many seeds. It was one seed. And what's the seed he's particularly talking about here? It was Christ. Christ, through the lineage of Abraham, is the seed that God's already pointing to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ would come to earth to live for about 33 years and be crucified on the cross. That was the plan and the purpose of God, and it's finally come to fulfillment. And Paul has preached it to the Galatian Christians, and people were coming in saying, no, that's not right. That's just part of the story. Let me add this to it. Paul says elsewhere, anything you add to the cross becomes an enemy of the cross. And truly, these Judaizers were enemies of the grace of God. The law came 430 years later, and it does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified by God. So when the law comes 430 years later, God doesn't say, Abraham, remember that covenant I made with you when I walked through and you saw me walk through the animals? All that's over now because we've got the law. We're going to depend on this. No. That was another building block, another step in the process of God to bring us from sin, original sin in the garden, to Jesus Christ thousands of years later to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for that sin and our sin so that we could have a relationship with God. And the law 430 years later did not nullify the covenant that God has made with Abraham and through Abraham to us. For if, if inheritance was based on the law, then it's no longer based on a promise. The word base literally means out of or out. So if the promise is out of the law, then it's not based on a promise. What's the promise based on? What's the promise based on? It's based on that God has granted Abraham a promise, a covenant that can't be revoked, can't be nullified, can't be added to or taken away from. And ultimately that is this, that you and I, like the Galatian Christians, are justified because of Christ. We're pronounced righteous because of our faith, our belief in Christ. So what? So taking that down to today, June 18th, 2017, 
does he say to us? We're reading this because this is part of the Bible that God has protected for us to see. What he taught the Galatians, I guarantee at your church you don't have anybody named Judaizers that are coming in spreading lies. We don't need those. What do we have? We have the devil still at work to thwart the plan of God. And it could be through false preachers. It could be through things in the media, things in our current culture that says, no, 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 no. What God said, that, that was old school. That, that really doesn't apply anymore. Folks, listen, it, it applies just as much now as it ever did then. In fact, more so. Because Abraham never saw. He didn't see what was coming. He just believed God. You and I can look back on an empty cross and an empty tomb and realize that Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, has fulfilled. He's become the curse for us, but the fulfillment of the promise of God. And ultimately, what is that promise? We're pronounced righteous. So what's going to happen? I trust Christ as my Lord and Savior. One day I'm going to die, and I'm going to face God. If I'm apart from Christ, if I'm over here, never trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior, what do I, tr- what do I face him based on? How well have you kept the law, Robert? I ain't done so good. I'm still not doing good. I know some of you think, well, you're a preacher. You probably don't sin anymore. Yeah, hold that thought. Because Paul elsewhere in Colossians says the flesh is being corrupted. I'm worse today than I was when I got saved in the sense of depending on my flesh. It'll let me down more now than it would then. I'm not relying on that. And I'm not going to face God based on the law. They're not going to open the scrolls and say, all right, let's just start with the Ten Commandments. How are you doing on those? <laughs> because I will be pronounced cursed if that's what I rely on. Instead, I face God, and it's coming. It'll happen one day. I hope I'm here when Jesus returns, but if not, I'm going to face him. And because of my faith in Christ, I'm going to be pronounced justified. Unjustified by the law, justified by faith in Christ. So my challenge to you is this. Is the law good? Yeah, the law was good. Its purpose was never to save you. Its purpose was to point to a Savior. Its purpose was to show you you can't keep it. So it's not that it was evil because it was from God. It was Old Testament. But it was pointing towards the final fulfillment in Christ who perfectly kept the law. So what am I telling you to do? I'm telling you to come by faith. Come empty-handed. And yeah, God's got things for you to do after you trust Christ as Savior. But we don't come to Christ based on those things. He doesn't love us less or love us more because of those things. He loves every one of you. And he's inviting you today to come to him by faith. And some of you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. But you struggle sometimes with both assurance of salvation. You also struggle with, am I I good enough? You weren't good enough when you came to Christ, and the only way you're good enough now is because you're in Christ. When God looks at you, who does he see? He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, what an important point for us to get. God, we don't understand grace because we don't deserve it. And I thank you that you've done something with us as we've trusted you as Savior that we do not deserve. And the point Paul was trying to make 
to the Galatian believers is continue in the faith that you started. Start, continue to walk the way you came to Christ. You came crucified. Stay there. Do what God's called you to do, but do it because of his love for you, not so you earn his love. God, help us to remember that tomorrow and the next day. In Christ's name, amen.